This episode includes topics of graphic violence, rape, and murder. Please take care of yourself and only listen if these are going to be safe topics for you. If you need to talk to someone or need further resources, the National Sexual Assault Hotline is 1-800-656-4673. Please listen at your discretion. Welcome to the Nerd Party. Throwback Paperback. I'm one of your hosts, Asia Bonilla. And I'm your other host, Charles Sheeland. And we're covering another very sad book today, The Lovely Bones by Alice Siebold. And for anyone who is new to the show, we're a podcast on the Nerd Party Network. We're best friends and we read and reread young adult books from our adolescence and share them with each other. And right now we're reading a series of four books that I read that are all sad single books. And Charles is reading them for the first time. And this also feels like a good time to mention that this book probably pushes past what would generally be considered young adult books, and the content of this book is quite adult. So here's just one more content warning before we dive in, that we will be discussing topics of graphic violence, rape, and murder, so totally okay with us if you need to skip this episode. But before we dive into the plot, we're going to give a little bit of intro like we like to do here on the show. So we'll start by talking about Alice Abold, the author, and she is known for her novels The Lovely Bones and The Almost Moon and a memoir titled Lucky, which describes her experience in her first year at Syracuse University in 1981 when she was brutally beaten and raped. And Anthony Broadwater, a black man, was convicted for her rape and served 16 years in prison. However, in 2021, so very recently, he was exonerated by a New York Supreme Court justice who determined there had been serious issues with the original conviction. The conviction had relied heavily on two pieces of evidence, Sebold's testimony and microscopic hair analysis, a forensic technique the U.S. Department of Justice later found to be unreliable. Also, Sebold identified a different man as her rapist at the original police lineup, so clearly mistakes were made. And I don't want to get too deep into this case because we are here to talk about the lovely bones, not Sebold's rape case, but... Honestly, this since this did come out relatively recently, I just I remember seeing this article in the news and it's just how crazy and unjust our justice system is, which isn't surprising especially when it comes to people of color, but she basically ran into this man 5 months after being raped and identified him as her rapist even though she didn't really see him and the police basically helped her get a conviction when she didn't even correctly identify him in a lineup, but If you're more interested in that, there are tons of articles online to read about the case. But getting back into Sibold's writing, in the late 90s, she started writing a novel about the rape and murder of an adolescent girl. And the interim title was Monsters, but it would eventually become The Lovely Bones. But she struggled to finish it and decided she needed to write about her own rape and its impact on her first which is when she wrote Lucky, her memoir, which was published in 1999 and described every aspect of the rape in graphic detail. The title of her memoir stemmed from a conversation with a police officer who told her that another woman had been raped and murdered in the same location and that Sebold was lucky because she hadn't been killed. And after the exoneration came out last year, Sebold did publicly apologize and Scribner, the publisher of Lucky, released a statement that 
distribution of all formats of the book would cease while Sebold and the publisher determined how to revise the work. So once she had finished her memoir, she was able to complete Monsters, which was eventually published as The Lovely Bones in 2002. And in an interview with Publishers Weekly in 2002, Sebold said, I was motivated to write about violence because I believe it's not unusual. I see it as just a part of life, and I think we get in trouble when we separate people who've experienced it from those who haven't. Though it's a horrible experience, it's not as if violence hasn't affected many of us. It remained on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year, and by 2007, The Lovely Bones had sold over 10 million copies worldwide. And finally, it was adapted into a film in 2009 with Saoirse Ronan as Susie Salmon and Stanley Tucci as George Harvey, who both received praise for their performances, despite the movie getting mixed reviews from critics. And more recently, it was actually adapted into a play in 2018 when the production made its world premiere at the Royal and Derngate in Northampton, England. But I think with that, that's the end of our intro. We are going to be dealing with a lot of heavy topics, so in case we haven't given enough warnings, just make sure that these are safe topics for you as we continue to talk about the story. Yeah, I can't believe you read this in high school, but that's mind-blowing to me because it's so dark, and I was struggling to read it now. I didn't want to keep reading. So, anyway, let me summarize the book. So... Susie Salmon is a 13-year-old girl who is raped and then murdered by her neighbor, Mr. Harvey. The story then follows her, so she's in heaven watching as her family copes with the loss and Mr. Harvey basically covering the tracks of his crimes. Eventually, they do get the proof that he killed her, but he runs away, and the family understandably has a really, really hard time dealing with this loss. Meanwhile, like I said, Susie's watching all of it. Eventually, her family does sort of not come to terms with it, but they are able to get into a new sort of growth for their family, and Harvey does die upon his return to their little hometown. So my impression, unsurprisingly, was that this book was really, really heavy. I did not know anything about the book other than that it was going to be violent. So when the first chapter really just was what it was, it was quite a shocker. And I I thought it was really hard to watch the family suffer. I think that Siebel does a really good job showing how they all struggle with it. I I found it, it seemed to believable to me, but it was, it was hard to read. Yeah, definitely. And since this is the reread for me, I will say I did watch the movie first before reading the book. I'm pretty sure I rented the movie with my family and it was a heavy movie, but the book is much more graphic than the movie because the movie was rated PG-13. So there's not as much like graphic violence or or even really a description of the rape, which I feel like even as an adult reading, like rereading this novel, it's very gut-wrenching and just uncomfortable. And for me, thinking back to when I read this, because I'm not exactly sure, but I'm assuming it was at some point in high school. But I'm pretty sure this book was one of my first real exposures to like what rape was in like a graphic sense, like getting full on details, because we don't just hear about Susie's rape. Like it's not like she got raped 
we experience her rape with her like it's described in detail so for me definitely I and it's in first person and it's in first person so I feel like for me thinking back of like you know when do you learn about things like that I think this was one of the first things that like really introduced to me like what it was and like what it would feel like and like that's something especially like growing up that's usually not things you're like exposed to randomly so it's definitely a very heavy book and not for the light of heart yeah and it's truly the first chapter like the very first chapter basically starts with Susie saying I'm dead I was 13 this is what happened to me and then she goes basically and tells the events of the day she is sort of led into this makeshift hovel by George Harvey and raped and then killed. And like I said, it was a hard chapter to read. I think that, not that the rest of the book was easy to read, but it took me like twice as long the first chapter because I just keep stopping halfway through. Yeah, and for me, like I do remember it being as graphic, but I didn't remember how quickly you're thrown into it. And I think for me, like trying to remember the movie versus the book, like in the movie there are it's more hinted like exactly what happens like you know that she was raped and murdered but like you don't know exactly how it went down and I think for me too like in the movie like they don't show the rape at all but I remember the scary part of the movie is like Harvey cuts her body up and like puts it into a safe and like they don't show that obviously in the movie but, like, they show, like, blood and the safe. And, like, that was, like, I remember, like, I can still remember the image from the movie because, I mean, even as a teenager, that's pretty scary. And, but, like, reading it in detail, like, yeah, it just, like, makes your skin crawl. Like, it's awful. And especially because we're literally getting it from Susie's point of view. Like, she's now died and, like, she's seeing what's happening to her body. Like, it's just awful. And I think it's almost worse because we know that Harvey is guilty. And so we're kind of worried about what he's going to do the rest of the time. It's not like in a murder mystery where you don't know who it is. And you like maybe in like a murder mystery or like a true crime situation, like you, like you might have a suspect. And so you're obviously worried like the detective is going to get like caught. But because like we, the readers know that Harvey is super twisted and we're getting more information from him like from his chapters that you're just kind of like tense the whole time because you're worried that he could strike again does that make sense yeah for I obviously for me didn't necessarily have those thoughts because I have read the story so I knew I knew generally it was going to happen I knew he wasn't going to attack anyone else at least in the story but for me also I think how you just mentioned like true crime how normally you don't know who the killer is or you know you're looking for a suspect which I think for me I do enjoy listening to true crime like podcasts and watching YouTube videos and I do like reading a good murder mystery but where this book is not that at all because there is no mystery we know who her killer is we know exactly how it happened and yet we're the only people who know none of the other characters her family has no idea what happened to her so Not that I want to say, like, it takes the fun out of, like, a murder mystery because there's no fun in people being killed and But there's something about it being, it's, it feels less, I know exactly what you mean because I literally just read a murder mystery this week where one woman, she gets her entire 
throat slit open by a razor blade, which is also a pretty gruesome way to kill someone. But because you weren't, I didn't know who it was the whole time. I wasn't creeped out the whole time I was reading the book. Yeah, it's like the idea of like people enjoy, or at least I like watching true crime or like reading about it and murder mysteries because it's kind of like you're trying to figure out who it is and like doing kind of almost like detective work basically whereas in this you don't get that so it's literally just the sadness of her family recovering from her loss and you're just seeing this man who is just getting away with it he's facing no consequences for his actions especially as it's slowly revealed over the book that like he's a serial killer he's done this to tons of other girls and so yeah it's just a lot and like you said you knew that he wasn't gonna attack and i didn't know that so like the dad starts to suspect harvey And then I got super worried that Harvey is going to attack him too. So yes, Susie's dad is kind of the only one who's really paying attention. And he is the only one who initially pretty much figures out that Harvey is the one who does it, which is like partially from his intuition. And just like, he's literally a weirdo. He's creepy. And he builds dollhouses, y'all. He builds custom luxury dollhouses. I'm sorry. That's not He's the villain clearly in the story. But Susie's dad is also the one who's running the family and he has to take care of Buckley and Lindsay because Susie's mom like literally goes MIA. Like she basically goes MIA at the beginning, but by the end she literally leaves the family. And also like there's a really heartbreaking scene where Susie's dad has to explain to Buckley, which is the youngest child. I think he's like five at the time when her murder happens and I just reading all reading the scene I was like I can't imagine like the burden of having to explain death to a child especially a death that's like not expected like it's not like a grandparent died of like old age like it's literally your sister who's only a few years older than you and it wasn't an accident like someone took her life away like it's so yeah that was really hard to read too and also related to the dad he goes to speak to ray who is another major character which basically is a boy in Susie's class that she had a crush on and was her first kiss and he's kind of seen as a suspect obviously because he was like close to her but obviously had nothing to do with it but Susie's dad goes over to his house and speaks to ray's mom and ray's mom gives him advice that like I would absolutely want to do if my child had been murdered and there was no proof to catch the killer. And she says, I would find a quiet way and I would kill him. Like once you were sure that it was, that was the murderer, you would just take them out, which no, we do not condemn murder. And it is probably not the best idea to, you know, ruin your life by killing someone else because you'd likely go to jail, but you just have to make sure you wouldn't get caught is what it really is. Yeah. I I mean, I didn't even think about actually committing murder because obviously I, well, we'll get to Harvey, but I think that he deserves the worst. But to me, I don't, I don't think I actually have the stones to kill people, but that's. I think if I was hurt enough, well, I think it would take a lot. I think it would be like, that would be the end of my life, but I wouldn't actually ever want to get to that point because that's pretty dark. Yeah. My next note was for when they have the funeral for Susie. Which, of course, classic killer thing. Harvey could not stay away from going to Susie's funeral. 
So he's there, which is just absolutely terrible because, you know, the reader, we're sitting there like, he's the murderer. He's right there and no one knows. And this was another super hard moment for me because Lindsay, the younger sister, so she's Susie's younger sister. She's just one year younger than Susie. And Lindsay sees Harvey at the funeral and he sees her and they make eye contact. And I swear to God, I dropped the book. I was like, if this man comes after a second little girl, I'm going to, I'm not going to keep reading. I was like, if this happens, I'll, I'll have to stop. Like I will be so, I was just already so uncomfortable. I was not enjoying the book. Not like in a, it's badly written sense. It was just in a, like, I don't like reading about uncomfortable, gross and unpleasant things. And I was like, if he comes after this girl's sister, I'm, I don't know if I'll be able to keep reading. And thank goodness that didn't happen. Yeah, I totally understand that. And I think that was kind of a part of Sebold's intentions, especially with her being raped. I think, I mean, as I gave that quote, I think like she wanted to write about violence and stuff because these things do happen to people. And for most people, it is very uncomfortable because it's, it's terrible. No one wants to hear about that. And... Yeah, I just, I think that that's definitely what she was going for. Like, she wanted to, like, get stories like that out there. But going back to Lindsay, I did want to talk about her because, yes, thankfully she was not a victim and she doesn't become one. And there's this moment, she goes to a camp, like, for gifted kids with a family friend, Samuel, who kind of starts to become her boyfriend and they start dating and they end up having sex at this camp. And I pulled a quote, which I, like, Something like, I didn't remember this, like, quote from reading it the first time, but it just really stood out to me. And it's, again, this is from Susie's point of view. So she says, At 14, my sister sailed away from me into a place I'd never been. In the walls of my sex, there was horror and blood. In the walls of hers, there were windows. And this quote just, like, really stood out to me because it made me think about the fact that her family will never even know that she was raped. She's the only person besides her rapist, Harvey, but she, like, she died with that knowledge and, like, no one will even know that because her body was never recovered. Like, there's no way of knowing, like, which I don't think that it would be great for the family to know that, but it's just crazy that, like, her story is, like, unfinished. Like, I don't know, I just, that, like, really stood out to me. Wow, you're right. I didn't even think of that, that they'll never know. And... I didn't pull that quote, but I did have in my notes that there's this strong contrast that Lindsay and Samuel have sort of tender and appropriate and consensual and affectionate sex that's, and that is like a moment for Susie to be like, wow, now, now Lindsay is moving into life that like I will have never lived. Yeah. And it's also just like the comparison of like Lindsay like gets to continue her life and like Susie just got this terrible violent end and like no one even knows like she doesn't even get the acknowledgement of anyone knowing her true story so I don't know that just hit me kind of hard but so then we get some more of Susie's father's journey to try and catch Harvey which again like the rest of this book is super dark like he goes into the field one night after he thinks it's Harvey but it's actually just two high schoolers trying to go hook up And one of them beats him with a baseball bat, which, you know, this is after he's been obsessed with Harvey. He's been telling the cops it's Harvey. 
and they have not found any proof. And so they're like, you really have to stop saying that because eventually you're going to get in trouble. And then like him going into the field makes it seem like he's like deranged. And so that kind of like also like seals the deal for Abigail, the mother. She kind of like gives up on him. And we already mentioned that she kind of shuts down after Susie's death, but like the detective who'd been Lynn, who'd been working to try to solve the case, he has obviously become very close with the family because he's constantly getting called to their house. And while Harvey's in surgery, not Harvey, while the father's in surgery, Lynn and the mother hook up and they start an affair. And like, it's kind of like this moment when he, when the father goes into the field and like, he's kind of gone past the point of no return. Basically that's also what ends up severing the mother. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, yeah, you can definitely, like, this is just showing how Susie's death is, like, taking a different toll on each of her family members, and I will say, I didn't write anything down for Abigail, Susie's mom, which did mean I wasn't angry with her and angry with her actions. I just didn't even have the energy to write anything down because everything that she did was so infuriating like, she literally abandons her family, and I understand... Well, you're getting way ahead of yourself. You're getting way ahead of yourself. I'm just mentioning, basically, that um, I'm talking about her having an affair, like, more so in that moment. Okay. She sure. eventually goes on to abandon her family, but in this moment, she's already abandoned her family. That's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. By having an affair with the literal detective who is a widow, so he's just in a vulnerable moment, overtaken by her beauty, whatever... She not only abandons her husband, but she abandons her family in this moment. Like, they've lost a daughter, and she's having an affair with the detective on her case. Like, that's what I meant by, I I know I might have sounded like I was jumping ahead, because she does actually eventually physically abandon them. But to me, this is, like you said, where she severs, and... Totally. Everyone deals with grief differently, but she turned her back on her family, which is just absolutely not the way to do it. So... Oh, don't worry. I have a lot written for her because but yeah. I, I, I actively did not like her. But, and also I will say like for Susie, Susie has a lot of grace throughout this that like she's not really angry with her mother for anything, which I can imagine because I would be so angry if my mom did this to my family after what happened, but she seems to take it very well. But like Charles said, we'll get more into that a little bit later. But we do also get some chapters from Harvey's perspective, or at least we hear some of his thoughts. And I wrote down this quote, which basically after he has like a flashback of him with his mother and he would sometimes sleep in the car with his mom, like they would go on road trips and stuff and they were kind of like partners in crime basically. And... They're sleeping in the car and three men like start banging on the window and the they wake up and they're clearly like making like sexual jokes like they're clearly they want to rape them up like it's pretty clear like that's what's happening they want to have sex with her whether they're going to consent or not for that is out of the question basically and the mom like tells him to turn on the car and she ends up like ramming the car into one of the men and the quote then is that 
He had had a moment of clarity about how life should be lived, not as a child or as a woman. They were the two worst things to be. Which, after reading this whole scene where I'm like, oh my gosh, like, is this, like, how does, how does this relate to, like, what Harvey's chosen to do with his life of, like, becoming a serial killer and, like, killing young girls and women? And his conclusion from his mom basically defending herself from possibly getting gang raped and her running over one of the potential rapists in self-defense is to say that he, like, doesn't want to be a child or a woman, which, first of all, you're a man. I mean, in this mo- in this moment, he was a kid, but, like, you're going to grow up to be a man, so you're not one of those, and you will not be one of those forever. So what kind of statement, what kind of conclusion even is that? And then you decided that you wanted to become one of those rapists that your mom rammed down. You wanted to become that. Like, I was just thinking, like, make it make sense. Like, his mom was not afraid to defend herself, and Harvey's reaction was that now that he wants to grow up and hurt the people he just identified as being the biggest victims? Like, I just, to me, like, I just, what kind of conclusion is that? I mean, it doesn't make sense. And I think that's, like, what Seabold gets, does really well, is that she makes characters that are human and, like, that are therefore stupid or, like, illogical or, in this case, like, cruel, but, like, You're absolutely right. Like, that is not the logical conclusion. If you think that women and children are vulnerable... Why would you become one of their attackers? Especially, like, again, it's just But I don't... But again, my point is that, like, he's a human and that he makes what is the wrong choice, which is to prey on those vulnerabilities. And that's, like, she's created... I mean, again, not that I agree with him or I would make that choice at all, but, like... It's kind of like it is a human reality that does exist that you'll make that wrong and twisted choice. Oh, yeah, I guess. Terrible. So, I guess I'm the one who keeps going back to the father, but he basically insinuates that they need to break into Harvey's house to get proof because he's convinced and Lindsay knows that. So, Lindsay actually does it. She breaks into the house, and again, all these freaking dark moments that I was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't read this. It's going to... If I was the kind of person that got nightmares, I would get nightmares from this. So I didn't want to keep reading again because she breaks into the house. She goes into his journal. She finds a sketch of, like, his, like, cornfield hovels. And she does get away, but he sees her. And he knows it was her. But uh, thankfully, the next chapter, she says to her dad he saw me. And I was like, well, at least she's going to stay in this house and never leave the house ever again because that way we'll be able to protect her. But then the father has a heart attack and basically in the chaos of everything, like, they've gotten the proof. They're calling the detective. The father has the heart attack. Harvey, he knows that the jig is up. He knows... Because, like, first, like, he calls the police And then he's like, it's okay. I understand. The girl's distressed. Like, I'll pay for the damages. Blah, 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 blah. Before the police have the page from Lindsay. And so basically he buys himself like an extra whatever window of time. And then he makes a run. And he gets away. And I was so mad. Like, because... Lindsay risked her life. She got the proof. And now everyone believes, like, everyone knows it was him. Because one, they have the proof. And two, 
he up and vanished. So clearly, he was guilty. And everyone has been ragging on the dad for being hysterical and for not letting it go. And he was right all along. But, like, because no one believed him, he's all messed up now. And I was so mad that Harvey got away. Because, like, he, for, like, almost a third or to a half of the book, he's just, like, on the run. He's just kind of chilling. And I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Yeah. I also, for, when we kind of, when people start to realize that it was Harvey, when, when the detectives, like, realize he made a mistake, like, let him get away. For me, I was also just waiting for Abigail's reaction, which she never apologizes nothing for doubting her husband when he was right all along and... To me, it was just, like, where, which I think it's kind of set up, and I'm sure Charles is going to talk about it, this idea of, like, she didn't want to be a mom, I think. So, therefore, like, she's not a good mom because, like, I don't know. I To me, like, you don't give up on your child. And to me, like, she gave up on Susie. Like, it was too much for her that, like, I don't know. To me, like, I obviously do not have children, but if my child was murdered, like, I don't think I would be able to move on with my life until I had some sort of answers or at least if you if there were possible answers out there like I would be looking for them and she just like shuts down and totally like doesn't participate at all and just thinks that her husband is crazy for you know thinking this creepy man who builds dolls down the street who is very shady like there's no suspicion there also just like no trust in your husband like I just I don't know to me like that part did like just really make me angry so when all that like was revealed I was like is she going to say anything? No. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of when, like, all hell breaks loose in the family. So the mother, she continues her affair with Lynn. And then, eventually, she's like, nah, I can't even do that. So she goes and lives in a cabin in the woods. Her family has... Her parents had a cabin in the woods. And then this is how bad... Her mother comes and lives with the family. So... Abigail's mom, who is not related to the father, she knows her daughter's such a freaking mess and has just basically abandoned her family that the grandmother comes to step in to run the household because Abigail couldn't take it. And there are two young kids at home. Like, I was so angry at Abigail. I I mean, I wrote in my notes that I hate her. I was like, you... <laughs> it's just... I mean, understandable. Yeah. Like, yeah. And the fact that, like, her mother has to come basically live with them because Abigail doesn't want the responsibility. Also because... Or, like, doesn't, like, feel sexually attracted to the father right now. Like... Well, I think it's... I think sex was just, like... Her affair with Len, to me, was, like, her... Again, her trying to escape her grief. Whereas, like, what she needed was therapy. She needed therapy. They probably could have went to couples therapy. Like, she needed to actually deal with her emotions, which is... She was trying to run away from them. And that's why, like, she not only moves to the cabin in the woods, like, she ends up moving all the way to California. Like, she totally runs. To, like, make wine. To the other side of the country, because this story takes place in Pennsylvania, I believe. Yeah. So she moves to the other side of the country for, what, eight years or something? Eight so she, years. And so she basically misses, especially Buckley, the youngest child, who's five. He's now, like, 13 to once the story, like, is near its end. She's missed, like, him, like, completely growing up, and she returns when Susie's dad has 
the heart attack. She, like, gets on a plane, which I was also like, why are you showing up now? Like, um... Don't get me started. Yeah. Oh, my God. And she flies back, and, like, Buckley, like, she tries talking to him, and he literally says, like, F you, which is totally understandable. You... He was a baby, basically. A baby. And his mother abandoned him. Just... His sister died. He lost his sister and his mother said, I don't want to be your mom anymore. Like, I don't know. Just like she caused so much more unnecessary trauma because she couldn't deal with her own grief. So she put even more grief on her family, which is just so selfish. Yeah. Ooh, I just. So oh like my you God. said, Susie kind of gives her a lot of grace. And I think it's because Susie understands her mom the most because or at least Susie, what we get from Susie's perspective is that Susie thinks that her mom never wanted to be a mom. That her mom and her... Which is probably, which is probably true. true. Her mom and her dad were just like madly in love and then all of a sudden her mom was pregnant and then that changed like their plans, obviously, because now they're going to have kids. And because Susie is like what makes abigail a mom this is my understanding this is my analysis put me down in my you know 11th grade english class but because Susie is like the actual reason that um that abigail becomes a mom that's what when Susie's gone abigail like almost feels free from that like responsibility of being a mother or that she doesn't feel the same level of responsibility for it because Susie, even again, she already had other daughters. She other, I mean, she had other children, but like, because Susie is like the catalyst of her being a mom and she doesn't have Susie anymore. She like goes on to basically not be a mother for eight years. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know if I necessarily got that interpretation just because, yes, she was, like, not necessarily, like, ecstatic about when Susie, when she got pregnant with Susie, but after Susie and Lindsay come, I think Susie kind of describes when Buckley's born, who he's, what, like, seven, eight years younger than Lindsay, so he's an accident. He was a surprise baby. I think for her, that's the catalyst that, like, begins this, like, this is not what I wanted my life to turn out to be because she talks about how as Susie and Lindsay were getting older, she was maybe planning to go back to school or something. And like her and the husband yeah, were like having sex on a regular like, basis. She was going to be able to like have her own life. Her whole life didn't have to be being a mom. And when she gets pregnant with Buckley, obviously that changes because she's now got a whole nother child. She's got to start over basically from scratch. So I got it in the sense of maybe if Buckley wouldn't have been born, maybe she wouldn't have gotten to that point, even though she probably would have. It just would have taken longer. But that was kind of, I feel like, the beginning of this. This is not what I wanted. Like, and then to lose a child was literally, like, the breaking point. But yeah, continuing talking about her, I did want to mention something that I just remembered that I also think is, like, another more points against abigail because when she gets to the hospital Susie's dad asks her like what did she say when people asked her about her family when she was in california 
And she would say that she only had two children, which if that's not running away from your grief, I don't know what is. The denial, the sheer denial that like she never existed is Oh, just, I disagree. I don't think that that's... I don't think that that... Because she does only have two children. One of her children is dead. But I'm saying in the sense of... It would be one thing if she had dealt with her grief. She, But I'm saying, like, she abandoned her family. She ran away. She hasn't dealt with her grief. And now she's lying to herself, being like, if I don't think about Susie, if I don't talk about her, this problem will go away. Like, it's, the to me, the context of that. Like, also, like, not mentioning that she has a husband because she's abandoned her family. Like, I don't know. To me, it was just, like, another highlight of the idea of she's running away from her grief. She hasn't dealt with it. Yeah, I mean, that's for sure. Because I'm sure that if you ask Susie's dad, he wouldn't say, I only have two children. Like, yeah, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, my aunt, she lost her daughter, and I don't think she would ever say, I have... Like, she would still, like, preface it that, like, I had a third... A second daughter, like, a third child who passed away. Like, I don't know, to me, like, even if the child died, like, it never leaves you, and just just deny her like that, like, I don't know, to me, like... I understand, like, obviously in small talk that might not come up, but to me, like, it's in the context of the situation. It's just, to me, was another example of how she hasn't fully dealt with her grief. I mean, she takes the picture of Susie when she's, like, in the airport that she has folded up in her wallet that she never looks at that's of Susie, and she leaves it, like, next to the tree. Like, I don't know. To me, I'm just getting the vibe of, like, Abigail, like, is not trying to, like, move through her grief. She's she's running away from it. Like, I don't know. Whereas, like, some of the other characters, like, Lindsay, like, even um, Susie's dad, like, I don't know. I just feel like they're taking more steps to, like, still remember her and, like, not just be, like, she never existed. Like, I don't know. But maybe I'm being too harsh of a judge. No, I, I think that I take your point. I just, that, I think, I think that, like... Again, I might be, again, I don't have children, so I don't know how I would feel in that situation. That one, to me, to to other people, if you don't want to talk, like, that I wouldn't necessarily... Again, we know that she's escaping her grief, so that feels worse coming well, from her. Well, also in the sense, it'd be one thing, you don't talk about something like that when it's fresh. Just, like, anybody that you know who's lost someone, yeah, within the first couple of years, it's still hard to talk about, but it's been eight years since she lost her and she still can't talk about it. She still can't say her name. You haven't dealt with it. Like, you know what I mean? You haven't gone through the, you know, like five stages of grief. You haven't accepted it. Like she hasn't gone through acceptance. Like, because I'm not saying you have to tell everyone you know about it, but the fact that she can't even say that she ever existed. Like, I don't know. I mean, it is like, it's a passing line. So again, maybe I'm like thinking, looking too much into it. But to me, like, I think a better example of her denying Susie is, like, when the whole town puts on an one-year anniversary memorial in the cornfield, and she refuses to go. Oh, yeah. And the kids are like, we want to go. And she's like, no. I was like, that's a bigger problem to me. I mean, again, that's one year after, but, like, that, I think, is a better example of her, like, just not dealing with the situation. Yeah, I guess too, to me, it's also just like, I just see her as a coward. Like, she literally ran away from her family. Like, people are asking her about this because she, like, literally abandoned her family. Also, I mean, she says she has two children. She doesn't live with them. Anyway, moving on from that, 
when Abigail is in the hospital with Susie's dad and she's talking to him, she finally does, like, identify herself as the weaker one between the two of them, which I feel like from the beginning of the book, she felt that the dad was the weaker one because he was getting caught up in stuff and he was trying to attack Harvey, which I was at least glad that she was able to identify that, no, you were the weak one. You were the one who literally ran away, couldn't handle it, did everything you could possibly do to escape your grief and there is no escape. So I will hand that to her that she like is able to like make, have that self-reflection and like identify for herself that. Yeah. I, I, there's no excusing her behavior to me. I mean, I know, I'm not saying that you're excusing it. I just, to me, I'm like, she was gone for eight years. Her husband has a heart attack and she's like, that's what brings her back. I don't know. To me, I was like, why even come back? Like, Oh, yeah, I don't think... I'm not excusing in the sense of, like... I didn't say you were. I didn't say you were. No, no, no. I I'm, would say, though, for me, I'm just saying that it was something that was, like, okay, at least she's had some growth, so maybe she does have, like, she could become a better person, whereas before I felt like... She, I mean, she was just denial, 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 whereas she had, like, to me, I, at least the idea of, like, identifying herself that, yes... You were the weaker one. You couldn't handle it. Like, to me, that was, like, a good step forward. But, no, I mean, especially for the kids, like, it would take me a long time. Like, Lindsay, for, especially for Buckley, who's so much younger, I don't, like, it would take years for me to be able to forgive my mother for that. Because assuming that, like, she does re-enter their lives and, like, they kind of become a family unit again, it would take a long time for me to be, like, be trusting because she literally abandoned them like I don't know to me like that gives you trust issues well they've also been living life without her like Sam proposed to Lindsay and that was really adorable she wasn't there for that and like we said like Lindsay graduated high school and college all while her mom was gone Buckley literally grew up and yeah the fact that she comes back after eight years it's just like yeah if she, you know maybe she'll improve but and and i don't mean to like characterize her as the villain but again she's human and she makes a mistake and that's probably why we're talking about her so much but her betrayal is pretty horrible yeah it's I wouldn't say unforgivable because I do think that you have to learn to forgive people who've wronged you in order to move on with your life. That doesn't mean that you have to let them back into your life and let them be a part of your life. But I think forgiving them helps you. So that's why, like, for Lindsay and Buckley, I would think that... I think it would take a long time. But, like, if I were Lindsay, who, like, literally... She's been dating the same boy since she was 14. She's going to marry him. And at the end of the book, she has a baby, like... It would be really hard to let my mother into that part of my life when she just dropped me like I was nothing for eight years of my life. Like, it would be really hard, especially after they all lost Susie. So it would just be really hard. To me, it would ultimately be the trust issues that I think which would, you know, they need to go to therapy, not only for the death of Susie, but now for the abandonment of their mother. Because to me, it would make me feel like I would never trust her love again. Because she so easily was able to just leave them behind. So what's to say, like, if things get hard, like, she could, like, she wouldn't do that again. Yeah. I agree. So, after all that, we can 
stop ragging on Abigail for a little bit. There's a rather crazy scene near the end, which I didn't, I did not remember this at all like this. Um, a character that we haven't really mentioned at all is Ruth, which she was basically when Susie died, it's described that as her soul was like leaving earth and she was dying, her soul touched Ruth. So Ruth like felt that. And since then, like Ruth's kind of developed this like connection to like kind of seeing ghosts or like lost souls, like mainly of people who've been murdered or had a violent end. And Ruth like feels this like connection to Susie. She writes tons of poems to her and stuff. And she ends up befriending Ray, which is the one that Susie had a crush on and kissed. And they kind of stay friends all throughout high school and continue to stay in touch after they go to college. And so near the end of the book, Susie ends up possessing Ruth's body. Like Ruth lets Susie in and Ruth goes into like the heaven and is like doing spoken word for the other like lost souls in this like kind of in-between heaven place. And I just definitely didn't remember this in the sense of I didn't remember it lasting this long because... Susie ends up being in Ruth's body for like, I would estimate about like eight hours at least or something like that maybe. Maybe a little less than that, but still it's like multiple hours. Yeah. Well, I only said eight hours because like, so what happens is Susie takes over Ruth's body. She talks to Ray. They go drive to this place and they kiss. They have sex. Then they go to sleep. Like, so even if you said it was like a nap, so maybe they slept only for like an hour and then they woke then they wake up yeah, she's still in the body it's definitely a long term possession so is what i'm saying whereas like if i remember correctly from the movie it was like she goes into Ruth's body like Ruth is there and she gets to kiss Ray again because all the time like or kind of throughout the book she's kind of talking about how you know she's in love with Ray and like she wishes she would have gotten more time with him and he's in love with her too like he misses her and so they kind of get this whole moment like they literally get to make love. Like I did not remember that at all, but I was just also just to me like shocked by literally how long the possession was. Like it was a long time. Like, I don't know if you were surprised by that. Yeah, I was. I, I wrote that I was okay with it. Like I didn't particularly like it. I felt like it was very bizarre. I didn't really feel like it fit in because the rest of the book is quite realistic and like quite heavily dark. So this felt like it was kind of out of character to, like, go into a little bit of, like, fantasy land. But I will say that it was very, it was a, I, I think it may, was something, like, the reader needed. Because Susie needs that positive experience. Kind of something. Susie got something. Yeah. I think that that is probably why it's there. Because it doesn't really advance the plot. But, like, we've kind of kept Ray and Ruth, like, we've kind of kept tabs on them for the last, you know, 10 years. Well, Susie has, yes. Kind of just to pay off for this. Which, again, I didn't dislike. I didn't, like, love, per se, but it... Yeah. It was, again, it just was, like, a little crazy because... Yeah, I just... I'm like, see, if I was... If I was... I mean, I know she gets... She has the power to possess Ruth because of, like, when she died. You know, there's there's an explanation. There's a world building, but I'm like... If it was up to me and I could possess someone and this is going to take us to the end, I would possess Harvey and, like, make him sit in his terribleness and then, like, 
destroy him. But I think that's also... Which I'm I know, kind of she's Lend out, and she's, you know, she's gone past, and she's not going to... She's not going to cause harm because she sees what causing harm does. Well, yeah, I think that's part of something that she, like, learns. Like, from the very beginning, like, she wants revenge to the point of... Which something that... We haven't really, like, talked about the heaven aspect of it, which I will say, like, from the movie I know, that was what a lot of, like, the critiques were against or people didn't like was the how the heaven, her heaven was portrayed. It was very, like, Charles kind of saying, like, fantastical. And whereas the rest of the story is very realistic, so it is kind of a weird contrast. But I will say... But I, that you're, that's a good point. The heaven is very fantastical in the book, too. I mean, it's not like she's, like, riding on unicorns. But, like, she's, like, kind of talking to a bunch of different people. And they're, like, you just think of something, it'll happen. And it's, like, I don't know. I always, I didn't skip those sections, obviously. But I clearly didn't write anything down about Well, yeah, them. they I weren't as important. Or they didn't feel as important to the story. Or as, like, But they were jarring. I will say they were jarring as a reader because they're, like, if you just imagine you're in a cotton candy truck, you can eat cotton candy while you watch your family. And I'm, like, I don't think she wants that. Well, and that's why I was just going to say what I did think was like, or what I liked was, so they talk about how, so in her heaven, there's like other people, like other people who've died, who like kind of show up and like, it sounds like she has like her own private area that like no one else can go, but then she can also like interact with other people. And there's this one character named Franny who kind of serves as like a mother figure to some of the other like young girls who have died and... She kind of explains to Susie, like, how... Because, to the heaven is kind of described, like, they're looking down on Earth. Like, they're watching. And this is kind of, like, almost like a purgatory. It's not, like, true heaven. I mean, we've been covering a couple things on death recently. Like, takes me back to the Skin Jacker trilogy, that idea of, like, there's the in-between. And then, you know, you get to where you're going to, like, true heaven. And Susie and Franny have this kind of conversation where she's like, you can't kind of move on to your real heaven until you let go of Earth. You stop watching your family. You stop needing revenge. You stop pretty much wanting anything. Stop wanting to live. Like, you've fully, like, accepted your death, which up until this point, we decided it's been, like, 10 years since her death. Susie is not ready for that. She wants to see her family, like, how they've, like, been affected and stuff. And she watches Ray and Ruth and just other people in the town to kind of, like, see how things play out. And so, like, I did enjoy that aspect of it because to me, like, that does seem, like, realistic. Like, obviously, we don't know what happens to us when we die, but I would think that especially if you were, if you died young and it wasn't, like, you were kind of ripped out of your life, I think you would be curious, like, what happened to the people you left behind that you cared about. So I thought that was an interesting idea. But, yes, this, but going back to the scene with her possessing Ruth, just also, I didn't remember this way. It was kind of just, like, a lot, but, like Charles said, I feel like, as the reader, you're not necessarily, like, you don't love it, but you're not, like, mad at it because it's nice to see Susie get something after she's literally gotten everything taken away from her since the beginning of the book. So, even if this makes no sense, you're like, well, at least she got some sort of, like, happiness. Yeah. But, so then after that, my final note was, which I did remember this from the movie and the book, which is that Harvey basically just dies by accident. 
so like it's the idea of like karma he kind of gets what's coming to him and earlier in the book Susie like mentions that her murder weapon of choice would be an icicle because it melts and he an icicle hits him and he ends up like falling over not a cliff but like down a hill yeah and dies personally I always think he deserved worse I think it should have been public and painful and worse but I but then again I'm also like such a pacifist and that like I don't know like I obviously wouldn't want to kill him no yeah I mean like I mean I think I'm also like I'm kind of like you know not to make it judicial but like I'm still kind of iffy on the whole idea of like capital punishment and I think that there's some people that deserve to be locked up in prison and and for life and always sit there and wrestle with the fact of their crimes forever. I think that's a better punishment than letting them die. But also that, you know, that's a whole other moral philosophy question. But I, I, to me, it just, I was annoyed that it was just that I wanted him to have a way work or I wanted him to like suffer. Well, I think that's understandable, especially since this is a novel and we did get some of Harvey's thoughts. I mean, we've identified that this is not like the one and only time he's killed someone. He's a serial killer. He's killed not like he's killed tons of children. He's raped children. He's raped women. He's killed women. So like he is like pretty freaking evil. So yes, I can understand after reading this and seeing ultimately that all of his intentions are not good. It's super easy to be like, what is the absolute worst punishment? Whereas what you're talking about, obviously, in the real world, we can't read each other's thoughts. So we don't really know what people's intentions are, which is why I know for me, like, I do feel like for capital punishment stuff, it's it's hard when we just don't know. You never really know what's happened and you don't know what people's true intentions are. But I do think for people who kill multiple people and are identified serial killers, I don't think that they deserve to live anymore. But... Other than that, it's it's hard to, like, make that decision. Also, because, like, we're all human beings. Like, no one should really have the right to play God. And, I mean, for example, Alice Siebold herself. Like, this man was in prison for 18 years for what is a very... 16. 16. Very severe crime that he didn't end up committing. And, like, thank God he wasn't executed for a crime he didn't commit. You know, that's another reason I'm kind of very on the fence about the idea of, like, killing someone. Yeah, because it is, like, since, yeah, there is, since there is, like, no real way to, like, know without a doubt that, you know, like, so I I totally understand that. But I think it's understandable reading the story. You're like, again, I just, yeah, I wanted him to, or I wanted him to feel pain, emotional pain, like, and, you know, there are some chapters where he's like, I I tried to stop, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, you didn't try hard enough. And I'm like, trying to stop is not what I want. I want you to stop, and I want you to really deal with it. Like, but anyway. He, I mean, it. but also, there's a beautiful irony in him getting a, he's completely, no one cares about him, no one knows who he is, and he kind of just goes out of the world and no one cares because he's no one and he's insignificant and yeah and I think that in and of itself is kind of like 
I don't know, kind of speaks to like maybe there is karma out there. Yeah, like you know? he has no legacy. He has nothing. He has no legacy left behind. I mean, especially yeah, because he essentially, I mean, he did kill a lot of people, but he would never be identified necessarily as the killer. Like, I guess maybe, like, if they found his body and they, like, made the connections, possibly they could, like, make that. But still, like, he would never experience, like, how there's, like, the infamous serial killers. He would never experience that while he was alive. Yeah. But... Do you have any final thoughts? So, my main final thought is, just for, like, the book in general, I think, like, my biggest takeaway, basically, is that... For anyone who has read this or wants to read this after this episode, if you didn't read along with us, I feel like the story, like, it's just ultimately, I feel like for anyone who's heard of The Lovely Bones, I feel like you know of it as a story of, oh, well, it's about a girl who gets raped and murdered. And, like, obviously that in and of itself is awful and heartbreaking and terrible and hard to read. But like we even said, like, what happens to Susie is really only what, like, the first or the first, like, one or two chapters of the book And the rest of the book is about her family and how her death literally destroys her family in the aftermath of that and how they have to pick up the pieces and attempt to put their lives back together, but how no matter what they do, it will never be the same. And like a piece will always be missing because she doesn't exist anymore. And to me, like that was something that I enjoy the book because to me I feel like this is one of the few books I mean I haven't read that many books about like death necessarily but to me it really like shows that really well with the family of like what a death in the family especially like a murder can do to a family and like just how it affects people and I feel like for me like that to me is like the most heartbreaking part of the story and like learning about that grief something that I hope to never experience but to me like that's what makes it such a great book of like how it describes that experience through all of the family members yeah I I agree that is death I mean that's what the book is about it's not really about Susie I mean she's kind of like our window but it's it's she's much like more the narrator basically her family's dealing with it and um, I don't think I'll read it again. I also don't think I would recommend it to someone. Not because I dislike it. I just... I, I'm i not interested in reading something like that. And... I... I do think it's well written. I think it's... There are parts of it that are haunting and hauntingly beautiful too. Like... Kind of the way, like, Lindsay and Samuel have this, like, pure romance throughout that is unvarnished. And, like, because Samuel's kind of the only person that lets Lindsay be herself without, like, comparing her to Mm -hmm. Susie is really lovely. There are things that are, you know, and, like, like the love that that father has for his kids. There are things that are really touching in the book, but to me... I like to read, when I read fiction, I like to read fiction to escape life, and this is not an escapist book. I'm very glad I read it. I don't ever need to read it again. Does that make sense? Yeah, I totally understand that. This is definitely something that, it's like, it's a book that kind of stays with you, and yeah, it's one of those books that, like, you think about it for weeks after reading it, just like... 
it's just a lot. So yeah, I definitely, like I said, not for the faint of heart and definitely not a good choice for if you're trying to escape your reality. This is not one of those books. But I would say that if you are looking for something like that, I would recommend it for that. But it is, it's a lot. Like you have to be yeah, mentally prepared you, for it. If it's something that's in the field of what you're looking for, it's extremely well done. But it is like, not a murder mystery. So if you were looking for a murder mystery, no, do not I'm enjoying, I'm about to finish my knitting murder mysteries. And again, people are dying in these gruesome ways. One girl gets literally drowned in a tub of dying yarn water. Like, <laughs> this series and I was sounds like, so ridiculous. I'm like, I'm like, let's keep going. Like, but this, oof. No, yeah, I still, like, I like, for a while, like, I read it, like, as a kid, like, I just, I remember seeing the movie coming out, and in case you haven't noticed, I'm very into dark things, and I remember seeing the preview being like, I want to see that, that looks so interesting and, like, scary, and I remember watching that, I found it, it was a book, and I was like, well, I want to read the book, and I remember, like, I will say, which Charles and I will eventually watch the movie, it is different, which I will say probably watch, watching it now as an adult, I will pick up on more of the, like, s- more subtle things, whereas I feel like as, like, a young teenager, some of that stuff probably went over my head because, like I said, to me, this was probably, like, my first real introduction to, like, graphic rape and, like, what that could be. And obviously in the movie, they don't have, like, there's no rape scene. Like, they don't show anything. So you I know, I was talking to a friend who had only seen the movie and he didn't even know that she was raped. I was going to say that too. I think that in the movie is not necessarily clear that she was. And I don't even know because like I said, no one knows that she was raped because there's no body. So the only person that knows is Susie and Harvey. And obviously Harvey doesn't necessarily say it out loud. And I don't know if Susie says it out loud. So, and I don't a hundred percent remember, but I do know for sure. I feel like when I watched the movie, I wasn't sure. Like I didn't realize she was raped, but obviously from the beginning of the book, you know, that's what happened. So definitely like, the book is more adult. I mean, they adjusted the movie to keep it under ratings for PG-13 so more people could see it. But, yeah, if anything, I thought the movie was fine. I do think if you kind of want to get a general idea of the story but you don't want to, you know, read all the graphic stuff, I would recommend watching the movie because it is not as dark from what I remember. But, yeah, I think well, that's it then for this episode. Yeah. That wraps up another book, Lovely Bones. Next week, we're reading another book about death because Asia, I mean, there's a therapy joke in there somewhere. This one is much lighter. It's much more pleasant. It's called Elsewhere by Gabrielle Zevin. Um, Doesn't really need a content warning if you listen to this episode, but the main character gets hit by a car and dies and that's truly the darkest thing that happens in the whole book. Yeah. And it's not graphic at all. It's not painful at all. She doesn't even realize she's dead. It's, yeah, for elsewhere, uh, from what I remember, it's more so about, like, her experience in the afterlife, which I'll say based off of the Skin Jacker trilogy, that is more what I was interested in as a kid. Like, oh, like, ghosts. Well, the, and, elsewhere like, is going to be much more like that. Elsewhere yeah, is much as opposed like to this that was, like, a lot. So, but it is Elsewhere by Gabrielle Zevin. So if you do read along, you can read that whole book for next week. And the week after that will be our final sad book, thank goodness. And that's going to be Full Tilt by Neil Schusterman. So if you do rant, 
if you do read along, you can plan those two books for the next two weeks. And as always, if you have any predictions, theories, or questions, remember that you can stay in touch with us about anything on the Nerd Party website. Just head over to nerdparty.com contact and select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there and get in touch with the network on Twitter at joinnerdparty or on Instagram at thenerdparty or facebook.com slash thenerdparty. And to find me, I'm at asiabonia on Twitter and asia.bonia on Instagram. And I'm at seashells on Instagram. And if you enjoy our show, make sure you rate and review it and share it with your friends or enemies if you don't like it. And, of course, check out the other podcasts we have on the Nerd Party Network. And subscribe to ours if you haven't already so you don't miss us next week. Yes, hit that subscribe and have a good one. We will see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party. Oh, you're still here. We are coming up on our 100th episode on Throwback Paperback, so we are planning on doing a giveaway for that. We're not going to reveal what it is just yet, but go ahead and follow us on Instagram to stay tuned for that. But with that, we'll see you next week.